Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts and every now and again a film appears that just grabs you by the, the, the lapels is it la- lapels or lapels lapels right lapels. okay it's a good start I'm carrying on no time for retakes the lapels and you know just pulls you close and, and says I am a great film do a spoiler special on me and the Mitchells versus the Machines is one such film looked fine trailer looked pretty funny back in the days when it was connected uh, but then when it hit Netflix a couple of weeks ago, Ben Travis of this parish <laughs> raised the little flag and said, guys, this is absolutely fantastic. One of the films of the year, five stars. And we were like, Ben, what the fuck are you talking ben about? Ben loves everything. Ben, ben is just being yeah. over-enthusiastic in his over-enthusiastic yeah. way. And he, he's going to love the Mitchells versus the Machines 1984. He's yeah. fully on board with that come one on. as well. Ben, you know, on come the word, on. there's a five-star movie, Travis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is getting personal now. Onward is a great movie. Onward is the best Pixar movie of last year. Let it be known. Oh. And can I just say that? Can I just say that this phrase "doing a Travis" means being objectively correct <laughs> and having very good uh, reviewing faculties oh. and knowing a good film when he sees one. Thank it's you like very doing much. a Liz That's right. Uh-huh. Can I just That's say that, that you know, perhaps with in terms of Onward and Soul, the discussion from last year, we gave Onward five stars. We gave Soul three stars. I would argue that you take one star off the Onward review and add it onto the Soul review and then you would be objectively right. But hey, what do I know? I'm being subjective about being objectively right. But anyway, you fuckers have really derailed this intro. And anyway, the point was, the point is, the point ben is, was right. the Mitchell's vs. Machines is great. Ben was right. And so we have decided to convene the pod team to discuss it in a big old spoiler special. And I didn't write down an intro. Is it obvious? Anyway, I'm joined by three Mitchells of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen, <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hello, Helen O'Hara. You've already heard him as well. It is the man who is right about everything except <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984. What's the other one that you're famously wrong about? Rise of Skywalker. Is Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> what? It's a good movie. No. Ben Travis. Ben Travis is here. Hello, Ben Travis. I am, I am present and correct. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show. <laughs> and we're joined by Maya He. Mm. Maya Ho. Okay. Maya, ooh, That's why. Maya, ha, ha. It's Amon Warman, the 17th best dressed man in film journalism. How are you? I'm going to pretend I didn't hear the 17th part of that. I am well. I didn't well. say this. I didn't, well, I didn't say that part, so I don't know how you could have possibly heard it. Anyway, anyway, we love this movie and we have convened. We have done something we've never done before in spoiler special history. Um, ben and I have literally just interviewed Mike Rianda about this for the spoiler podcast. So I thought, you know what? Whilst his answers are still fresh in our minds, let's get the team together and roll straight into the spoiler specials. So you're going to hear us talking about the movie after you hear this hot off the presses, Mike Rianda interview. He was great fun and really, really informative and insightful on most of the things we remember to ask him about. (laughs) We we thought we had a little bit more time, just a little bit more time. Anyway, hey ho, Mike Rianda, do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in this very, very special spoiler special for Spiral from the Book of Saw by people who haven't seen the film. No, that's a callback to a joke on a different podcast, folks, uh, which feels very in keeping with the spirit of the Mitchells versus Machines. I am. It is, of course, a spoiler special for that movie. And we're joined by the film's writer and director, Mike Rianda. How are you, sir? I'm great. I, I'm ready to talk about Spiral. Let's dig in. Let's do it. So what was your favorite trap? <laughs> um... 
Probably the spiral. <laughs> Do you know, I, I, can I even, I'm not even sure I can spoil spiral at this point. I'm not sure what my embargo situation is, but there is no spiral related trap what? in spiral. What? <laughs> I know. I'm hurling my computer across the room. The audience can't see it, but I'm so angry. Whereas at least in your movie, there are Mitchells and there are machines, you know? And, yes, and the Mitchells are versus those machines. We good on that promise. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Uh, so the 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 title at one point was was connected. Yes. Uh, as well, was that the original title, or was it always the Mitchells versus Machines? No, it was it was um for, it was actually it started out being Control Alt Escape, um which okay. I never liked. Um, and so I was <laughs> always trying to fix it, and I was like, oh, the Mitchells versus Machines, I really like this one. Everyone was on board. They released the title, and then the for some reason the studio was like, this is horrible. Um, so they changed it to connected, which, um, I will be diplomatic. I understand why they did it. You know, I yeah. understand they, they wanted to, they wanted to, um, you know, make it seem like it was less niche, niche, I guess. But, but I just think, you know, if I'm a little kid and I see the word connected, I'm just going to fall asleep, you know, <laughs> like by the end, you're like, Can, uh, <laughs> um, you know, um, and I was like, kids like robots. What are we doing here? You know, um. But I was really pumped because Netflix was like, hey, is it cool if we move it back to the old title? And I'm like, yes. Um, I have like, why am I wearing a Netflix shirt right now? It appeared on my on my on my body. This is so weird. Yeah. Um, so and you were like, oh, when you say the original title, do you mean Control Alt Escape or do you mean the Mitchells versus Machines? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, one of those I like. Um, but <laughs> but of, of course, Connected, you know, does have a thematic resonance as yes. well. You know, there, totally. there's there's much has been made, obviously, about, you know, the, this is a film about technology and connections to te- technology and people may be getting lost in that a little bit. But at the same time, it's also about the human connections. So was that something that was on your mind right from right from the off? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I really just wanted to make a film about, you know, a family, um, you know, and, and because I, I sort of like I am really inspired by movies that are really specific. You know, that's why I like Hal Ashby and that's why I like, you know, Wes Anderson and these people mm-hmm. is that they're really specific. So I was like, OK, well, I'll draw. I'm not the creative. <laughs> so I'll just draw from my own family. Um, and, you know, the, my dad looks exactly like Rick um, and my mom sort of has, uh, you know, is a very you know, will like run through a brick wall for her family. Um, so, um, so that's, that's basically where it started. And, and we found in the writing that any time the writing ever slipped towards, you know, me and Jeff Rowe, who co-wrote it with me, um, and who's a genius. Um, but whenever the writing slipped towards like being preachy or being about technology, you just, you wanted to light the paper on fire. You're like, this is a nightmare. Um, but like whenever the the story was about people trying to connect with each other as human beings, it became really engaging. And that was like, you know, I would say the funny thing about this movie is is like three or four years ago, we had a version of it that played pretty good. Um, and that's sort of when Chris uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord came on board. Um, but, and the, the, the biggest change to it, like you would watch the movie and you're like, these are most of the same beats, but it's like, why is it so much better? And the reasons it's better is because it doesn't have the, in that version had the family fighting a lot, like Mm -hmm. angry, yelling, arguing. Um, and we changed it slowly, but surely to a more realistic version of that, which is like, you love your family and you want it, make it work. And you want to have a relationship with your mom and dad, but it's sometimes difficult. 
Um, and and those those argumentative scenes became scenes where people were trying to connect with each other and missing, and that really became became the secret sauce to make the movie work be- like better than it did. You know, like it was it was okay, but it, I I really think it's a better movie because of it. The connection stuff between the family is is amazing. It works so well. But I actually do think you do a great job with the f- way that the different people in the family connect to technology. One of the things I loved about it is that it would be so easy to make a film about this where it's like, phones are bad, right, guys? Everyone's looking at their phone all the time. <laughs> yeah. But I really loved the way that actually Katie connects to the world through her phone and it, she uses it to express her creativity and that her uh, the the way that Linda uses it uh, she kind of is comparing herself to other people and that Rick everybody yeah. has their own relationship with technology how did you kind of work to break down those sort of generational differences and work that into the script and into the story I mean it, it a lot of it was just us our own views you know our own because it's like for example I started, I got into animation because I was on uh, like Ren and Stimpy chat rooms and I was like, there was some cartoonist in there and I was like, oh wow, these are real people. And I sort of like, I discovered a lot of animation through the internet and I got, you know, Macromedia Flash on the internet when I was 14 and I was like, whoa, I could make my own cartoons, you know? So it just made sense to us, you know, both me and Jeff that like, we just kind of discovered the world through the the technology. So it can't be all bad. Um, and, and, you know, someone like my dad or, you know, people in my dad's generation sort of look at it as this evil of society, but they also at the same time have to use it to communicate with each other. So, I mean, we were, we really were trying to stay away from being preachy and, and just trying to reflect our own experiences and it and and it's just you know because it's like I remember watching which it, this is a funny movie like the Cable Guy is pretty funny but I remember being a kid and watching Cable Guy and like Jim Carrey takes out the satellite and then everyone starts reading books and I was like hey this is BS <laughs> like I was a little twelve year old like I'm not gonna start reading books the second the TV goes out I think you're lying to me um so <laughs> so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Ben Stiller's gonna like come at me now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's a lot of good parts about that movie, Ben. We're, we're a lot cool. of good parts. Yeah, great, great stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll remember them in a second. But <laughs> only kidding, Cable Guy. Only kidding. Um, but it's also the, the movie is also I think about the the, the generational defied as well and it's about the you know and this is something i can relate to as i get older it's about for for rick in particular it's about not understanding the younger generation maybe even fears of being usurped by them and for for katie it's again it's about not being understood in a different way it's about you don't understand that this is this is me this is my identity this is you know it's all part of me and why don't you get that was that something that you were conscious of, of putting into the movie as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is another when we first started the movie, I just had this idea of I just had this idea of like, okay, my crazy family plus robots equals movie question. <laughs> um and then I was like trying to jam those together like a caveman. Um and uh and I I I had I took my nieces and nephews out to like I have a, like five nieces and nephews because my brother and sister are older. And I took him to like Uncle Michael's fun laser tag. You know, I was like, if you don't play laser tag and eat pizza. But anyway, they, yeah. they were they were really into it. And but at dinner, I was like, so how's school, you know, or whatever. And then they're like on their phones, ignoring me. 
and like, you know, chatting with their friends and stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, and I was like, this is family bonding time. And I like looked in the mirror and I'd become my dad. I was like, wow, how did I get a mustache and his jacket on? Um, And like, I'm like, you should be making eye contact with each other. What's happening? And then I realized that the sort of the generational gap is sort of like, you could use technology as a way to talk about the generational gap and as a way to talk about like, oh, that is how somebody younger than me communicates with their friends. And it's alien to me, but also if I want to communicate with my nephew, I have to send him memes and stuff, <laughs> um, you know, because that's how he talks to his friends. Um, and and sort of like and it was like a lesson for me um, just and also it was a lesson in sort of empathy for my dad. Because I would be playing Game Boy in the back seat while he would be like trying to teach me about birds, and I'd be like, "I don't care about sparrows, father. I'm playing Kirby's Dream Course, um, you know." And he's like, "Pay attention. Um, that's a quail." And I'm like, "Shut up." Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I was such a little jerk, um, and and it made me like sort of understand my dad for for one of the first times. Something you mentioned there is memes. I love the sort of strong meme energy that comes a lot uh, across in a lot of the humor <laughs> here. Things like the screaming gibbon and just the way the visual language. How do you appropriate the visual language of memes and get it into a feature film? Because the I can imagine that's so much more complicated than you would think. Yeah, it, I mean, the hardest thing is just to, I mean, you know, and some people on the internet are like, this is terrible. These are 10 year old memes. Go to hell. Um, <laughs> you know, so sorry, guys. Um, but I, you know, I think the thing we were trying to do is just, it was like that idea of communication or whatever. And it's like, oh, this is how Katie communicates. And then in sort of, and also, you know, this is her style of filmmaking. She's like a maximalist, similar to the way that we're maximalists. Um, and, um, and she would just kind of throw in everything in there. And then and then that sort of naturally led to like, oh, it's like she's editing the movie. Um, and and like in terms of like what memes we used and, and that sort of thing, we just we just tried to sort of like lean on things that everyone understood. Like you don't have to be an Internet expert to think a screaming monkey is funny <laughs> or maybe you do. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's I was like, it worked. You know, we showed it to test audiences and they were like, hey, we like this screaming monkey. And we're like, because yes. the some people in the studio didn't think we should open the movie with a screaming monkey with Tim and Eric like editing. Um, but and we were like, no, no, it'll be great. Um, and, you know, people, the audiences dug it. So it, it sort of stayed in. So. So, yeah, basically, we're just trying to sort of use it as a language, you know, use it as a way of uh, that Katie was communicating with the people in her life. Uh, was the movie, did the movie always begin in that way? Because uh, I, I know that animated movies can kind of go through some changes uh, throughout the process. We had so many openings. It was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we had one where it was like, we had one that was funny. It was like the This American Life music. And it was like... Um, uh, just robots just smashing their own faces in and and like Osimo falling down the stairs. We had like live action footage and stuff. Um, and we had so many different versions, but but it ultimately like the introduction was so important to setting up the story. Right. Um, and even though it's sort of like it has narration, you know, there there's things about it that I'm like, I wish it didn't have narration, but it also just worked. Um, it sort of set up the story that we were going to tell because we kept we also kept trying to not have robots in the beginning. We're like, we're just going to start it on the characters. And that was like great. But then when the robots came, the audience like rioted 
you know, even when you're watching it, you're like, what robots? What? I thought this was like a Mike Lee movie. What's happening? The, the from Dusk Till Dawn effect, I call that. They're like, wait, yeah. this is the movie now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And what about the ending? How many different iterations of that did you go through? The, co- the cool thing about the ending is that that was, that kind of just worked. I remember yeah. like a really, <laughs> the, because it's an original movie, we were always like on the brink of cancellation. Like we, every single screening was like, guys, if you don't nail this, all your work is over, you know, um, because, you know, I, the reason it's like clear why, because it's like nobody wants to lose a bunch of money and it's risky to make something original. So we always had to prove ourselves. Um, but that was one of the scenes that I remember saved the movie at one point because, you know, it was like, it was like, oh, are we going to, is the movie going to get canceled? And then we showed it to some executives and they started crying and we're like, hey, <laughs> we got, that's another three months at least. <laughs> um, so that was cool. Amazing. Which, which scene in particular, which scene or shot made them blub? It was the, it was the um, Katie going to school. Um, oh. And I think we were, were lucky because there is one, one of the executives kids was going to school that September. <laughs> um, but, um, but no, and, and, and. And, you know, the the addition of her leaving, like for for a long time, she wasn't going to school and it was like a it was like more convoluted. But we eventually realized that like, oh, her leaving, her leaving for school and growing was like such an important part of the part of the movie um, because it's sort of about growing with your family. Um, Mm -hmm. And even though you're going away, it's like just a new part of your life and you don't leave these people behind and that sort of thing. And and it kind of became this like nice, bittersweet ending that wasn't. Um, just a dance party or whatever. <laughs> I mean, the emotional through line of the film works so much for me. I was watching it again today in preparation for this, and I, I, there were several points where I was like very close to tears because the, the the emotional through line of the moose, what the what the carved moose means. How how long was that part of the process of of the uh, of the story, and as this kind of symbol of uh, father daughter yeah. love? The funny the funny part about that is is that my Jeff Rowe, who is the co-writer and co-director, like we were like banging our heads against the wall trying to come up because like everything in the movie we wanted to be unique and memorable and not like any other movie. Um, And he was like, we're just like banging our head against the wall and like trying to figure out what should be like the, 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 the relationship between Rick and Katie was like working, but it needed to be better. And you, it would be nice if we had some sort of visual to track their relationship. And then he was like, you know, if this was just a normal movie, it would just be like a freaking wooden moose or something. I don't know. <laughs> and then I was like, and then we're like, yeah, yeah, those idiots who put, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, moving things in their movies to, uh, you know, track relationships. That's that's stupid. And then like after 30 seconds, we're like, let's just do that. That, that sounds great, right? That would work perfectly. Um, and then um, but it took a lot of like sort of stitching to get um to get it working to sort of get it tracking throughout the whole movie and also to get you to just care about it um because that's the number one thing you have to fight against with one of these movies is just like you can make it as funny as you want but if people mm. don't care they're just going to be checking their phone and you know running around in the aisles and stuff so like that was the hardest work in the movie and i think the most important was just nailing those emotional scenes and making sure that each of them had space to breathe. And I think the main thing is like telling the audience that these are humans with emotions that matter. And the biggest thing that we did to sort of, I think, land that was in the beginning of the movie when we we had the idea to have Katie's laptop break. 
because it sort of told people that like, oh, there are bad things that can happen in this world and people's emotions matter. And how upset would you be at your dad if he broke your laptop? You know, and that that sort of like when we did that, it sort of clicked everything into focus and, mm. and sort of made the movie work for the first time. I mean, if the moose is quite a traditional symbol of their relationship, I love that the other symbol of their relationship is T.I. featuring Rihanna. <laughs> Live your life. Was that always like the song of the movie? Um, no, you know, it's funny. It was originally um, uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. And it worked like a peach. Mm. It's like emotional. It's nostalgic. It's like really a kicking song. And and in the first version, they were just slaughtering robots to it like <laughs> brutally, um, <laughs> which we had to tone down a little bit. Um, but um, but um, the the bad part about that is like every time you'd be like, they'd like be singing to each other and saying, I want to feel the heat with somebody. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't good. This isn't oh. good. They're related. They're related. This is terrible. <laughs> um, so we had to we had to change it. And then we had like a. We had this like um, gong show type game where I was like, every editor pick 25 songs. And then we all the story artists and, and me and Jeff um, would sit around and then they would just play, you know, ABBA Waterloo. And then somebody would be like, ding, you know, get it out of there. And then, you know, we just kept trying new ones. Um, and oddly, this song worked. It, I think it's just because it's so joyous. It's like so explosively happy. Um, and that's yeah. kind of what the movie needed at that point. It has a great intro as well, doesn't it? Where, which <laughs> if I, I don't, I, I'm struggling to recall exactly how I want to dance with someone begins, but it doesn't, I don't think it begins in the same way. So no, it doesn't have a strange Romanian song sampled it in the beginning. Do, shouldn't it? <laughs> it should. All songs yeah. should. Um, <laughs> all songs should begin with Numa song. Numa. <laughs> Whoa, whoa. Is Dragon's Den Dintai here? <laughs> They're in the fourth Zoom window. You guys can't see it out there, but it's wild. They're all four here. Yeah, we, we paid a lot of money for that one second cameo. <laughs> a lot of money indeed. Um, I want to ask about uh, some of the... We, we talked a little bit on our non-spoiler special about the density uh, of the jokes and the, yeah. the, the, the number of things you pack into the frame. And there are, there are moments here where... You know, there's there's the list of Katie's films, for example. Uh, I think people are going to have a lot of fun pausing and and taking a look at. There's the Mitchells, the list of the Mitchells' shortcomings and failings as well. Yeah. How much fun is it coming up with all that stuff? And is that something that you and Jeff do together, or do you uh, throw it out to people as, as well? No, that's that's like by far the most fun stuff to do in the movie because it's like you know it it's it's a part of the movie where because like I think both me and Jeff are like we just love writing jokes. And, you know, it's like it's easy. It's sort of kind of easy for us to write jokes. And it's like and we have to like kind of turn that dial down a little bit to like actually write a scene. So it's not just like joke Tourette's like where people it doesn't even feel like humans are talking to each other. They're just saying punchlines yeah. to each other. Um, yeah. But that is a part of the movie that you could just run wild. Um, and it would always be something where the artist would be like, you know, like, Mike, we have to have this asset by 8 a.m. tomorrow. Like, and I'm like, okay, I'll wake up at four. I'll write 300 <laughs> fake Criterion Collection movies. Pick your top eight. And they're like, eight? And I'm like, let's make it 60. <laughs> um, just because, like, I, I always love, I always love that joke density. And I love, it just makes, yeah, it just makes you feel like the, 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 the people who are making it care as much as you are. I feel like the, you sort of take your cues from that. I remember like watching you know, cartoons when I was a kid and it was like, 
I'd watch the Fantastic Four cartoon, and I was like, nobody cared about this. You know, and I, w- I wouldn't be able to put it into words, but I'm like, this is just some job for these people. But yeah. when I would watch the X-Men cartoon, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, you got Chris Claremont on the staff here, you know, or whatever. Like, um, so you could just, you, I always felt like I could feel it. Um, so we just wanted to get the audiences to feel that. And God bless the art team. They were so nice. Because they could have just said, screw you, Mike. <laughs> um, you know, we we aren't going to do 15 covers, you know, bespoke covers for these, um, you know, for these bizarre jokes that you've made. But they did them all. Um, and they did them really wonderfully, too. One of the flaws that comes up in that scene is uh, only pretends to like Fellini. How much do you actually <laughs> like Fellini? <laughs> um, I like Fellini, but I don't probably like him as much as I should, question mark. Bergman is the big one that I'm like, poof, this, this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, I keep trying. I'm like, all right, Fanny and, Fanny and Alexander, here we go. <laughs> and I'm just like, start flagging an hour or two. And I'm like, oh, boy. Um, uh, so I, I, I do have those crimes. But I, I like some Fellini. I, I do want to talk as well about the the writing process you guys went through. Because this is, I think the script is incredible. And it's oh, it's packed with wonderful payoffs and amazing setups i mean the 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 the, the payoff of the screwdriver for example yeah, tickled me immensely and it's 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 one of those wonderful things where you you do such almost invisible work setting it up uh so i want to ask maybe specifically about that one first uh, where did that come from the idea that a rick would carry a screwdriver around <laughs> with him all the time b force his family to do so as well and c that those screwdrivers would be uh, hugely important in saving the world yeah, I'm, I mean, it, it, I, I think we found, and that was something that I found on Gravity Falls, is that if you, you can hide setups in jokes so easily, because if you, if you do a setup without a joke, people are just like, why are they talking about a screwdriver? Oh, it's going to come back later. Jesus. Um, but like, <laughs> but if you, if you do it within a joke, people are like, oh, that was a funny joke. Moving on to the next thing. Um, and then they don't realize that that has been incepted in their head. And, the, you know, the, 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 that is actually an example, just speaking of the density of the script, because it's like Jeff and I wrote a version of the script. We had the storyboard artist draw it. They added a bunch of great jokes and then we would get it into edit and then we would sort of look at it and then we would add stuff there and then we would show it to Chris Miller and Phil Lord and they would throw stuff out and be like, you can beat this joke and how about this and whatever. And that moment in particular with the screwdriver was Chris trying to work out a logic problem where he's like, why does Rick get out of the pod and no one else can? He's like, this doesn't make any sense. It's kind of, this is kind of breaking the movie. Um, and like, Chris is like, is like brilliant and funny, but he's also like sort of very logical, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like, well, what if he had, you know, my dad had this like really specific screwdriver he liked, you know, what if that was the thing he broke out and then maybe, I don't know, maybe he could set it up early. I don't know. And then we'd be like, oh, that's great. And we sort of went back to a previous scene and wrote some joke that sort of set it up. And then we had it come back at the end and it sort of ended up working out. So it's like some of this stuff is like it's like literally reverse engineered to where we need to be, you know, and then sort of, okay, how can you how can we elegantly slip this in in the middle in a place where it makes sense? And a lot of those moments like. For example, the screwdrivers setup didn't have this, but a lot of the setups, like the them set, setting up singing Rihanna or whatever, it had gone in different places in the movie where we're like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe we could stick it in an act two. No, that doesn't work. Maybe we'll stick it in an act one. And 
for every moment and joke you see in the movie, there's like a, a, a pile of corpses of dead jokes. <laughs> we we climbed to victory on the backs of the, the corpses of all of our dead, horrible jokes. <laughs> I am aware we've not got a huge amount of time left, and I have so, so many questions to ask about the, the Furby scene. You have no idea. Oh, um, as somebody who had a Furby growing up, um, that, that scene broke me in so many ways, unlocked so many <laughs> memories, because you got the original Furby sounds. Uh, uh, right, to go back yes. to the beginning... Uh, was that always a Furby in the script? Did you have to approach? Is it Hasbro who who owns the Furby? Was, what was that it was, process? It was, it was Hasbro. It was a wild process because we all like th- that scene when sort of me and Jeff wrote it. We were just like screaming, laughing, <laughs> like howling, and like clutching the you know chairs, and then like afterwards we're like let's go to cinnabon to celebrate. And then we got nothing done for the rest of the day because we're like oh my god. But um uh but. So we thought it was really funny and and all the the producers were always like not Chris and Phil but sort of the the there's like the Chris and Phil are like the wacky creative producers <laughs> and then there are the producers that like make sure we don't light the building on fire <laughs> um and they were like this is insane mike you can't put this for like ha- you think hasbro is going to approve this um <laughs> and and I, we're like all right and then so we tried like a tickle me which we're like oh so now let's do tickle me melmo uh, and it, he, was, he was like in Morton Joe, but he was, he was Elmo and he had like a, half his face ripped off and he had like a breathing apparatus. And he Mediocre. was like, yeah, and at some, some point he like smells a rose. You can actually see the scene on uh, our head of story, Guillermo Martinez's uh, Twitter, but he's like Amazing. sniffing a rose and he's like, launch the Valkyries. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's super funny, but it wasn't as good. Like when we showed it in the screening, like we worked really hard to make it as good. And when we showed it in the screening, the 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 people who had seen the movie already and were watching it again, like rioted. They're like, "Bring back the Furby! <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> that was the best scene in the movie." Um, so we're like, "All right." So um, so I I just sort of I just tried ten times harder, and I like I am very monomaniacal if I have a goal. So it's like I found someone that that worked at Hasbro three years ago, and I had lunch with him on false pretenses. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, by the way, you, you used to work at Hasbro. Do you know anybody I could contact about this? You know, this, this, uh, 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 merchandising opportunity in our, in our animated comedy. And they're like, I guess, you know, and then every time I was like, I was like, we love Furbies, you know, and we just want to showcase Furbies. And then very slowly, you know, like, 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 you know, sort of like, you know, cause you can't just lead with the like, oh, 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 like, can't lead with that. <laughs> but it was so cool that they let us do it. And they were just like, the only thing they asked was like, at one point, the Furby lit on fire and revealed a horrible like <laughs> T-1000 face underneath. And like, you know, kids were, cr- you know, like Aaron started crying. Um, and they're like, don't light the Furby on fire and show it's horrible robotic underneath. And we're like, all right, Aww, that's a fair. Come on, spoil sports. Because <laughs> surely ha- um, Hasbro had to give you the, the noises. The I love how you tapped into the inherently creepy sound that babies used to make it's just incredible the, our our that was another day where it's like our editor just like went on youtube and just found a bunch of weird singing furbies and, and he just like put them together our editor is like this like has the most fun editing of anyone i've ever seen in my life he's just like cracking himself up and like he's about his name's greg levitan and then again like when we saw the saw that 
footage for the first time, we were just like screaming <laughs> um, and just like hoping that anyone else would like it. And it's funny in our first test screening, I th- I'd say half of the audience was like loving it. And then a woman who was right next to the president of the company grabbed her family and was like, we are leaving. This is filth. <laughs> Was she a furby? By chance? <laughs> <laughs> just... She pulled back her face in the reveal. She was like, tickle. Uh, no, uh... How do they know about the dark harvest? This is really, <laughs> this is really weird. Oh no, this is going to derail our plans. Um, I, yeah, the furby, the furby scene is is astonishing. It's the it's the sort of icing on the uh, on the cherry on top of the cake. If, if that's how you make a cake, I'm not entirely yeah. sure, but but. <laughs> Uh, because you're piling everything on top of the Mitchells in in that in that sequence, uh, but I also have to mention the the Roombas that oh, yeah. sequence. Oh my god, <laughs> where did that come from? The idea that you know it's like the Daleks, I guess, in reverse. That, Their no, nemesis totally. would be a, would be an escalator. That was that was that was like one of the actually first jokes I we sort of came up with. Like I remember sort of like oh it's funny if like Roombas with butter knives are sort of like charging at the family and then you just sort of kick them over or whatever. Um, and, and also at one point, the, the Roombas, it was like, charge brothers! And then they all fall down the, um, they all fall down the, uh, uh, thing. And then, and then one of them goes off and then turns back to look at the others. And the one's like, go brother, even though we have fallen, you will rise like the Valkyrie! And then he charges off and there's like (laughs) triumphant music playing. Like all the whole, at one point, the whole movie was just stuff like that. It was. Like it was like the head of the studio was like, "What are you doing? How many dark toy jokes can you put in one movie?" And we're like, "I don't know, 60? Um, But then we 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 had to cut back on them, and I think the movie is better for it. If you watch the old version of the movie, it's just a collection of those jokes. It's the voices. It's the fact that they're going, "Oh, ow, ow, pain." You know, it's just then a dead robotic voice that just absolutely destroys. I mean, me. now we've seen the beautiful, coherent version of this movie. I would be open to you doing an Adam McKay, where you're like, "Here's all the other jokes just cobbled together oh, into no, an yeah. alternate movie." You know. Give us the give us the sixty toy jokes cut. We're we're I mean we've got all that stuff, man. Um, also, at one point they the whole at one point the whole impetus of the movie was that they had kidnapped the president. So there are scenes of the movie that were boarded where it's like the family is driving and it's like you know I think we should turn around. It's like shut up, Barack Obama, and it was like literally Barack Obama in the back. <laughs> it's like he's like the dog is chewing his tie. Um, and uh, but you know that that political forces um, had those come out of the movie. A lot of people have been asking about the <laughs> about pig dog, pig dog, pig dog, loaf of bread. Um, where did that joke come from? Um, that came from literally my own uh, life um, because my family had a pug named Manchichi um, and we would always joke about it looking like a loaf of bread and um, that was just, that was like in the script from the from the beginning. Just because it was, it seemed, it seemed like a layup. <laughs> I'll give you a couple of listener questions, real, real quick. Sure. Uh, this one's just come in from Chaspers underscore Arts. Uh, was it difficult to have KDB queer, and was it a struggle for it to be mentioned in the film? I mean, it, 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 it actually. I mean, the thing that was difficult about it was trying to, you know, was working with our team. Um, that was like we have a lot of LGBTQ plus members of our team, and we were just trying to make sure that we were doing it right and doing it justice and doing and telling the type of story that we are should be telling and are allowed to tell. Because like we we 
we sort of talked to the crew about doing it and they were really excited and it was like, okay, great. And then we would, you know, sort of work with them to try to make sure that we were striking the right balance. Cause sometimes you would do something and it would feel inorganic and, and that sort of thing. So we worked really closely with the crew to just make sure that that was the right balance. And the studio was like very, very cool about it. Um, which was, which was nice. Like they were that you would, you would sort of think that they would sort of be sketchy, but they were like, no, we think that's great. Go for it. And uh, Ben Robbins asks, is the cutaway gag about the seven-hour mule tour with Prancer Belongs to the Canyon now the most expensive cutaway gag ever? Yes. Um, we were, uh, everyone in our life system tried to get us to take that out of the movie. They were like, this joke is costing you as much as like eight minutes of normal screen time. And we're like, but it's really funny though. <laughs> um, and they're like, yeah. Um, so we, we ended up making it work and, and the team that did it, Imageworks was so great about sort of figuring out ways to, you know, sort of, cause it is like a live action set in, in some ways where you're trying to, you have to make sacrifices here if you're going to get this thing here. So, so we were, tr- we tried to be smart around the other parts of the movie that weren't the most expensive joke in the history of Sony Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mike, we could talk to you all day about this movie. There are many, many questions yet unasked, but it's been a pleasure. We have to let you go. You're being yanked. There's a massive crook coming around your neck right now. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was a treat. Uh, I, I love it. I love this podcast, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to happy to talk to you guys. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thanks Mike so much, Rianda. Mike. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mike Rianda. Ben, great guy. I wish we had. I wish we had more time. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, because I, I have so many Furby questions that I still haven't asked and I still need answers for. But the yeah. ones that you did answer were yeah. amazing. Maybe we can get him back on. He's a, he is somehow a fan of the podcast and um, uh, and, uh, and 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 crucially has uh, followed us both on Twitter, and that will prove to be his undoing. So <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But anyway, enough of him. He's gone. Let's talk about us and let's talk let's talk about us let's talk about the movie let's talk about the mitchells versus the machines um because it's it is for my money so far we're only in may but one of the films of the year and Mm -hmm. if this doesn't win the best uh animated feature at next year's oscars then i think that will probably mean something really really great has risen to the top since then but yeah it's just a cracking film isn't it yeah yeah yeah, phenomenal. I just I just find myself like guffawing with laughter about every three or four minutes, uh, kind of throughout. After the first maybe five or six minutes, I feel like you're you're kind of getting into the you know getting into the setting, and then there'll be something every few minutes that just killed me, um, and 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 then that only speeds up towards the end as you get more and more into the family. What I find actually when I went back and rewatched it was also that I was getting emotional more early. Like that when I rewatched it. Even the first five minutes, I find incredibly emotional in a way that I hadn't done uh, first time around. So yeah, I think this improves on on further viewings, which is very exciting. For me, it has the insane like gag hit rate of the very best Lord of Miller project. It has mm. the sort of creative freewheeling feeling of the Lego movie. It has the sort of just insane gag canon feeling of like 21 Jump Street. And at the same time, it is really emotional. I think the fact that it's on the one hand such a chaotic kind of crazy movie, but then also the way that it carves out space to have these really emotional family scenes is beautiful. And at the same time, along with Spider-Verse, it just feels light years ahead of what any other like mainstream animated studio is doing at the moment. It feels 
like the next step, the next evolution in the kind of in the way that Pixar felt like the next evolution from Disney back in the day. I find what's happening right now at Sony Pictures Animation with Lord and Miller and with the filmmakers that they're choosing to work with just massively exciting right now. Mm. Yeah. I can't wait to rewatch this. Uh, for me, this is not one of the films of the year. This is the film of the year right now. Ooh. It is my number one of 2021, which is insane because like I vaguely remember watching a trailer for Connected way back when, and this film was not on my radar at all. And then I sort of, you know, saw uh, Benjamin's five-star review, and I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> maybe I should pay attention uh, to what is going on here, and it did not disappoint, so I, that's me. It sounds like you're connected right now. <laughs> is that Olivia Coleman? <laughs> I really hope not. I mean... <laughs> Wow. In, in normal terms, yes, but in this, after this, right, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Sorry, Olivia, I'm doing a podcast. Can you call back later on? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, I think what puts it into five star territory for me is that emotional connection uh, that this film gave me. What they do with the father and daughter storyline for family stuff, like I, I don't cry a lot watching movies, but family stuff, if you do it well, it just mm-hmm. hits me on a guttural level. And what they did with the father and daughter and how they charted that relationship um, was both heartbreaking and heartwarming. And I just absolutely loved it. And you are right in that it's chaotic, uh, but because the film is so grounded in emotion, in an emotional reality, which is told very effectively, it allows them to be as chaotic as they are. Um, mm. because it serves the themes and it serves the characters so well. And I just love that about it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned uh, Connected when the trailer for the film came out back when it was called Connected, because then it just kind of just disappeared off the radar a little bit. And, you know, obviously doing what we do, we keep a we keep an eye on stuff and we, you know, make sure that things are still coming out and whatnot. But this one, this one did fall off a little bit to the point where I wasn't even sure it was the same film. Whenever the Mitchells versus Machines came out and Ben started raving about it, I was like, okay, so is this the film that was connected? Because Lord of Miller produced, that's also Lord of Miller produced. I'm pretty sure they were about the same thing, but I wasn't sure whether it was a different film or whether it had undergone a major overhaul, hence the name change. But when you see it, it's just tremendous. And it's one of those things that it's, you know, it's great in one way that we're talking about this movie because Netflix picked it up from Sony Pictures Animation and they they gave it a platform and they gave it an audience and you know uh and it's finding a, a, a huge audience I think as well but oh man this is one of those movies I really wish we'd seen in the big screen with, with a big audience oh. you know I saw this on my own both times I've seen it you know and it, it just I want to be with people when the Furby appears. I want to be with people when the Roombas <laughs> fall down the escalator. Oh my I, God. I want to be with people for everything that uh, Deborah bought 5,000 and Eric say and do. Uh, and it's killing me that I didn't ask my Grianda about them because they may be my favorite characters of the year. Uh, it's, and it's, it's one of the things I love about it is, and this is another reason why I was really glad we were interviewing Mike Grianda as well, because you know, it's. I've seen so many people describe it as a Lord Miller movie, and it bears lots of hallmarks of things that they've produced in the past, of course, and they're pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of animation technique, as they did with, with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But having talked to Mike now, you can see that this is absolutely his movie. It is his personality, his sense of humor is, is stamped all over it. And I love the fact that 
you know, it's so different from pretty much anything that you will see. It There's a homogenization to mainstream animation these days where, you know, there are different studios, but everything feels and looks like it's made in the same factory. Even Pixar stuff can look and feel like it's made in... They, they, they just throw all the ingredients in the big Pixar machine because, and then they, it comes out looking like it looks because that's how animated movies look, should look, and should feel, and should act. And these guys, Lord of Miller and Mike Rianda with this movie uh, and Spider-Verse have gone, you know what? Why? Why does it have to look that way? Because there's a there's a generation of of kids coming up, and I think that's one of the one of the themes of the movie. One of the things that the movie mm-hmm. really nails brilliantly. There's a generation of kids coming up who are bonded to their phone, and they're bonded, and they they're consuming, but also able to make the democratization of filmmaking has really transformed how people think in terms of visual terms, the visual grammar of filmmaking is changing so much. So why shouldn't this movie reflect that? And that's one of the things I absolutely love about this movie. Yeah, 100%. I think that even before you get to the, you know, the end credits and the, and the sort of pictures of all the filmmakers with their families, this feels homemade in a non-pejorative sense. It feels very mm. personal. It feels deeply personal. And I think, you know, you get a lot of that kind of seeping through in in the quest to go away and find your people at animation school, but also in the detail of the family life, you know, uh, you can you can see it. This is... If you look at the look at the kitchen, right? Look at the kitchen. Look at the ugly cupboards mm-hmm. and floorboards that nobody's gotten around to maybe you know redecorating because they haven't had money or they haven't had time or they haven't had energy. You know, look at the kind of random sort of bits of decor that they've collected because they thought it was funny or they thought it was sweet or somebody gave it to them and nothing really matches and nothing goes and everything's a bit kind of kicked about and it just looks like a family home in a way that you know not just animation but like live action often doesn't in these films and that's i think really really extraordinary that the you know ugly little i think it's a rabbit statue standing by the kitchen door all of these <laughs> all of these like super cute but just really What's the new word? Chuggy? New chuggy? Um, chuggy. Chuggy. Yeah, the, the signs, you know, sort of live, laugh, love kind of signs hanging on all the doors mm-hmm. and all the walls. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like, it's it's not production designed, or it is production designed, but it's produ- production designed to look like it wasn't production designed in a way that we don't see very often. And I love that. I think you kind of feel that in the character designs as well. I think especially of Katie, like a little detail that I love about her is that her her nails are sort of scribbled on with sharpies that she's mm-hmm. covered in doodles. She writes on her hand like she I do. Writes oh on my her god! Hand. And and you see that that amazing shot where she says, I think it's like Mitchell's engaged, and she she like spins around, and all the the flames come up behind her and stuff, and her finger points towards the camera, and you can see all over her hand are these little like felt tip doodles yeah. and that yeah. kind of thing, and you just. The essence of who these characters are is so, so well drawn into how they are drawn, how they are animated. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that so much. I'm really glad you said that about Mike Rihanna, because I think that speaks to a wider industry problem in that when it's a famous producer on a film, we'll often elevate uh, that person and discard, not discard, but like the, the director in the mix. Sideline. It's yeah. a sideline. Um, yeah. Where, and, but if it's not a famous producer, then that is very much averse, which I've always found weird. But mm. you know, listening to Ben and Helen talk just emphasizes how much of this film is relatable and universal whilst being specific. 
you know, just that thing about finding your people. I really sort of, you know, that hit me because, uh, you know, that reminded me of sort of my journey and, you know, finding my people, which is the, the film sort of critic community. It took me a while mm-hmm. to get there. And, you know, before then I did always sort of feel a little bit out of place, like trying to find, you know, people who shared my passion as much as I did. And mm-hmm. just that journey um, yeah. and how they chart that is really, really effective as well. Yeah. I think that's something we probably all feel (laughs) or certainly all felt at a a certain point in our lives. I think, you know, this is the life we chose, the life we lead. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and that that sometimes- And then I realised you all were my people and it was just horrifying and terrifying. (laughs) I've been trying to change ever since, you know. It is is terrible that I I call all three of you friends. It it reflects badly on me as much as it reflects on you, obviously. But but it's true. It is absolutely true. You know, I'm I'm very socially awkward and, you know, there, there are many, you know, there were Many many times in my life when I you know didn't have people and uh, and that's one of the things that this movie is really great at at, at, at encapsulating as well you know that 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 shared experience and the, the bond you can have with people once you click over something that you both love is is tremendous and you know and I, I love that it, you know the movie goes out of its way to show that eventually that that can be your family yeah mm-hmm. and the other thing that can make you click with other people is a homemade movie about dog cop i love yeah. dog cop so so much mm-hmm. um and 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 the uh, and rick's realization that dog cop is an incredible thing yeah. is is brings me so much joy as well as the sort of pathos as well of him being the sergeant of him being sarge and seeing how mm. katie kind of sees him but also seeing that what she is making she already is a success he's worried that she's going to be successful or not going to be successful and not going to find her way and she already is she's already found her people people are already connecting with her and that he can kind of relax into that and let her do her thing mm. through dog cop <laughs> yeah. love dog cop well that's that's one of the things that i i would have asked mike rianda but sadly we, we had to let him go um, we had kidnapped him. Um, we had just arranged an interview with him and uh, he had to go off and do more interviews, uh, talking to other podcasts, motherfucker. Um, no, he's entirely free to do so. But one of the things I would have asked him had we had a little bit more time was about, you know, how closely this story was taken from his own experience. And, you know, there, there are lines, for example, Rick says to Katie very early on, how are you going to make a living out of filmmaking? And there's a skepticism Oof. towards filmmaking as a as a uh, vocation all the way through the movie until the very very end and katie of course thinly tells her story it's very thinly failed <laughs> dog cop is it very thinly <laughs> failed <laughs> she's disguising her life experience in dog cop and i wonder how much mike grianda was disguising his life experience uh, and what maybe he went through growing up as you know a kid wanting to break into animation Mm. Yeah, maybe he'd heard those exact words from his parents uh, at some point in his life yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I feel like so much of the detail of uh, of Katie's experience, you know, the, the weirdness of the drawings that, you know, standing up in class and showing your little animation and, and have everybody not connect mm. to it. <laughs> I, I feel like if, if it's not maybe drawn from his personal experience, I feel like that stuff that they have talked about in the studio that animators have you know, contributed to all gotten together and discussed their common experiences and and kind of drawn it together from that because it just feels too particular to be invented in a way. You know, it, the, the robot apocalypse. Yeah, okay, they, they came up with that, but <laughs> but the detail of the human interactions feels so real and grinds it so well that mm-hmm. that just feels like it really does come from people's experience. Do you know the most real and relatable moment in the movie for me? 
I, I dread to ask. Please tell me. <laughs> it's the moment when they're being attacked uh, by all manner of technology in the mall. <laughs> <laughs> and Linda, the mom, played by Maya Rudolph, is attacked by a massage chair. and But she also really starts loving it. And I think Katie goes to grab her and take her out of the chair. And she's like, mm, and she starts smacking her hand. And it's just that, that little... That little moment, just a little, mm, and the smack of the hand is the most human and relatable thing in the entire film. It's it's perfect. I wonder if that was an improv. Another thing we didn't ask Mike Rianda. Anyway. <laughs> and that's the packing in the gags within the gags as well, because the way the way that she says when she's in that chair, she starts saying, what are you doing? And then she goes, oh, no, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I did catch that one, but there are so many details I'm sure that I didn't catch first time around that I'm just, I'm so excited. Like, I haven't. Watched it a second time yet, only because I want to watch it with my family and we haven't found the time to do that yet. But yeah. I've been telling my mom and my sis, like, you guys, you have to watch this. It's amazing. I, I loved, um, I definitely paused second time around to look at all of Katie's film names and mm-hmm. some of them are just incredible. I loved Cat with a Human Face. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was particularly impressed with They Live in the Jurassic period, which I think is basically they live, but everybody's dinosaurs instead of aliens. <laughs> I wonder if her brother would, might have been involved in that one. <laughs> yeah, he's, in fact, he's, he is yeah. the poster for that one. Um, and just all the, like, it's such a film nerdy film as yeah. well. Like, we spoke about that with, with Mike Rianda, that obviously Katie loving film and you seeing that through, of course this is a film that all of us are going to be obsessed with. The We spoke about the Mount Rushmore of film directors, obviously Celine yes. Skiama and mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig and Hal Ashby and like Lynn even Ramsey. in the films that Ka- Lynn Ramsey as well mm-hmm. and yeah the, the films that Katie's made Portrait of an Idiot on Fire <laughs> is one of them there was like a director on director Q&A with Agnes Varda it's, it's pulling from some really really lovely stuff in this massive mainstream movie I also uh, enjoyed the the books that the um, Olivia Colman AI is reading I don't know if you guys noticed that, but she's reading The Art of War, fair enough. <laughs> the, the singularity is near and the master algorithm, which I, I thought was very clever. I will say, like, of all the sort of behind the scenes watching the voice actors work, uh, people I want to see, Olivia Colman's is the one I want to see the most. She is having so much fun in, in this film. I really enjoyed that. Just the voice acting in general. Danny McBride yeah. is a voice and an, an actor I know, but I never. Never really clipped me. Like these, the voices were so good. They were the characters, not the, not themselves, not the actors. Just really, really strong all all across the board. Because he plays, he tends to play exaggerated, grotesque characters. And yeah, obviously Rick's an animated character. There's, there's certainly an exaggeration there, of course. But I'd say it's one of the most relatable and most human characters that I've heard. And he's not necessarily. You always, you know, he's such a funny guy that you tend to go to him to. You deliver the joke, don't you? But here he's grounding it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very interesting way. I thought they were all great. Well done. Well done, everybody. It would have been so easy to make Dynamite Bai's character just not not as empathetic as he is and just have yeah. him sort of be the antagonist to Katie. Um, but that is not the case at all. And the uh, relationship and the character in the film as a whole is much, much better for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and they, they show that very early on in the scene where after Katie's laptop gets broken, you see how much he wants to try and repair the relationship as well. I mean, that's the, if you want, you know, the inciting incident of the film, that's the thing that sets him off on the road trip and and then off they, off they go. Um, 
that's interesting as well that you're, you're taking them out of their environment and putting them on the road when the uh, when the apocalypse happens. Hey, did we ask Mike Rianda about that, Ben? <laughs> nope. What did we ask him about? I'm sure we asked him about some good stuff. I think mostly the Furby. I think it really was mostly that. <laughs> mostly asked about the Furby. Anyway, if you came for Furby chat, then you have been sated. <laughs> well, at least the Rianda cut. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some questions from mm-hmm. from listeners. Uh, here's one from Scott Forrest. I'm curious if any of you had any moments that hit close to home. As someone who went to film school after youth of making scrappy films and has had a bumpy career since, Katie's arc was too real. As someone who went to film school and has ended up doing this, then Katie's arc really, really fucking hit mm-hmm. home. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the finding uh, her people definitely hit home. That mm-hmm. line you were talking about earlier in terms of the father wondering if Katie's going to be successful, that hit home in a big way. Um, so yeah, um, as I say, that there's a lot that's relatable uh, about uh, this film and that character in particular. I was the dinosaur-obsessed little brother. I still am the dinosaur-obsessed <laughs> little brother. And who, I mean, I wasn't as young as uh, as Aaron is when Katie's leaving for film school, but um, like both my older brother and older sister went off to uni at the same time, in the same year. And it was like, oh, so they, there were five of us in the house and now it's just me and my mum and dad. And that's going to be like, that feels like a really big change. So there was definitely that side of it that I related to, of understanding Katie's point of view of having been through that of like oh it's time to go and do my thing and at the same time having been in Aaron's shoes of like oh no my bigger siblings are leaving and like what does that mean now yeah Hmm. and people are getting dinosaurs wrong and mispronouncing their names (laughs) not giving them feathers what the hell (laughs) yeah Spielberg is the only person who gets a pass for that (laughs) (laughs) but he really does he really I'm guessing Ross was your favorite friends character Ben uh, I mean, for the for the dinosaur chat, yes, for being one of the worst people in the world. <laughs> no. That's harsh, poor Ross. He's a good comedy character. He's yeah. maybe not a good person. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think pretty much all the friends are garbage. It's like it's, uh, Hugh Laurie gets it absolutely right on the in the uh, in the episode when Rachel is flying to London to stop Ross getting married to Emily. And uh, she tells him the story of what she's doing. And he goes, you really are a terrible person, aren't you? <laughs> and she is. And she and Ross are perfect for each other because of that, you know. But, you know, Phoebe, Phoebe, if you spent more than five minutes with Phoebe, you want to run far and fast in the other direction. Well, I just think you're a smelly cat, that's all. <laughs> smelly cat, smelly cat. Welcome to the Friends spoiler special. <laughs> Don't tempt me, folks. Don't tempt me. It's like, it's fine. Oh my God, the reunion's coming up. That's a perfect opportunity to do it. Uh, Henry Davis, H118118. That's a great name. Uh, which moment would you like to have seen in a packed theatre? So live your life. Hey. Hey. No. It's the Furby. It's the Furby. It would, the place would have erupted. And and also just all of the kind of Rambo mum stuff, I think, would have yes. played really, really yes. well. Yeah, Linda going beast mode is I mean, one of my favourite things. Mum's and it, scary uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> that's something else that we didn't get to um, talk to Mike Reander about. What, what but did that we I talk about? I honestly don't know. I, like, we were having a great time, but I, I don't know what we spoke well, about. but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> because in that sequence, one of the things that's so great about Spider-Verse was the way they played with with the animation, with how many frames they're animating characters at different times. Uh And when Linda goes beast mode, 
the fluidity of the film takes a real step up. She bec- like the mm-hmm. way that she's animated stands out to anything else that we've seen in the film so far. And she's moving faster than everyone else, slicker than everyone else. And I would have loved to have uh, spoken to Mike Reander about that because I think there's probably some really uh, interesting technical weirdness that they had to do to make that stuff really work mm-hmm. in the same way that like, yeah, when you've got those sequences in Spider-Verse where Miles and Peter B. Parker are like swinging at different frame rates because mm-hmm. one's more comfortable with their role as Spider-Man as the other and stuff, uh, which as you're watching it, it just makes sense in the moment as you're kind of experiencing the film. But they're doing really kind of clever technical stuff behind the scenes. And I really got the sense of that in that final kind of, yeah, Linda Mm. fight sequence. There's a really good uh, thread uh, that Phil Lord posted, uh, I think 12 days ago now, I think it was May 31st or April 31st about uh, the visuals and how they achieved some of the stuff they did. I highly recommend Mm. seeking it out. Absolutely. Moments in the, in the movie theater or cinema, as we call it over here. <laughs> ah, yeah. I think you probably hit them all pretty much. Uh, although I love pretty much everything that Beck Bennett and Fred Armisen did <laughs> as Eric and Deborah bought five thousand. <laughs> Eating the orange. Eating the orange <laughs> in the regular human way. <laughs> I consume food in the same way. <laughs> I love when they're kind of walking down to the basement and Casey's like, wait, no, I want to see where this is going. <laughs> I, I love the bit where they're, they're in the car and they're suddenly attacked by other robots. And I think it's Linda turns around and goes, hey, find some ro- find those robots. And they, they turn to each other and point at each other, go, found a robot. And then they do some sort of little high five. And it's, it's the sweetest thing. They are the robot Laurel and Hardy. And I, I would be here for 25,000 spinoffs of those guys, uh, which leads us nicely into a question from John P. Merrigan. Has there ever been a more immediately lovable film that is ripe for spinoffs? Uh, would watch a thousand mini cartoons featuring any of the characters. Any of the characters? Wow. Pretty much any of okay. the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly hadn't thought that, but I would watch all of Katie Mitchell's films. If there was, like, if we could watch her in universe movies, I would yeah. 100% see that. I thought, because I went on YouTube, I, I WhatsApp you guys, I think it might have been maybe just you, Helen, uh, mm. after I saw this movie for the first time. And I was like, oh, man, because I'd gone to YouTube and typed in Kate, Katie Does Film Stuff, because I thought they might have gone meta and loaded a, a channel with all her movies. And they they hadn't didn't exist, and it might be there now. I'm just far too lazy to check. But they hadn't. This is before the movie came out, so yeah. But I'd I'd watch those absolutely. I'd watch a I'd watch a film about the guy at the dino stop. Because <laughs> yeah, they're going, hey, come humans, come over here. This is a lot of fun. He goes, I love fun. <laughs> People say that about me. <laughs> I want to watch a film about that guy having fun. And of course, the people who lose their shit over the, the absence of Wi-Fi and very, very quickly turn into some sort of dark Furby-esque cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd watch a movie about those guys as well. At the yeah. risk of sounding robotic, I would just go, I'm just going to go Woodwatch times a thousand to everything you just said. <laughs> I'm on is the Woodwatch three thousand right? Woodwatch, 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 Woodwatch. Yeah, I think um, my 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 small nephew has a, a massive massive thing for robots. Like he loves anything with robots, and he will watch you know the Star Wars droid tales. He'll watch the the uh, Big Hero Six TV series just from robots. So on his behalf, I would like to request a, a, a series just about Eric and Deborah. 
At jmare one the Porg of Prophecy on Twitter, uh, says one of the highlights of the movie is the encounter with the homicidal Furbies and their dark ruler, the Elder Furby. I'd like to ask the team, what childhood toy would they most fear to be pursued by? Uh, I, I'm going to go straight in here. Soids. Yeah. Do you remember Soids? No. Nope. I'm really dating myself here, but uh, <laughs> Soids were... Uh, it's some sort of sort of terrifying mechanized toy, not quite transformers, but they they looked really mechanical and horrible, and they took the form of you know lizards and dinosaurs and and bugs, and so they were a little bit transformery in that way, but they looked much more mechanical and less designed, and they had jagged edges and points and stuff, and you could build the toys. They had little engines in them, and they just looked terrifying, and so. Uh, please, someone else know what soids are, because otherwise I think I'm having some sort of uh, episode. And uh, maybe I've Mandela affected myself into thinking these things exist. Do you know what the Mandela effect is? Is it when you invent things and think they exist? Yes. Okay. That's it. That's it. Uh, which was coined, I think, by a journalist. I read about this recently. So it was coined by a journalist who, um, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, found that a lot of people had thought had convinced themselves that Nelson Mandela was dead and they wow. were stunned to find that he actually had been in prison the entire time. And so he, you know, so this, 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 uh, this psychological effect of, I know this with certainty. I remember this with certainty, but no one else does is now called the Mandela effect. It can be applied to a number of things, but very famously, a lot of people on the internet tried to claim that they remembered a Sinbad movie, a movie starring Sinbad called, I think it was called Shazam. And this is years before years before you know Shazam came out, uh, in which he played a genie, and people will swear blind that this thing existed, this movie existed, this movie does not exist. Um, and so they, you say that's what they so want they us say, to think. Precisely, it's uh, <laughs> gaslighting the movie. Oh, Hitchcock should do one of those. Hey. But none of these things are my fact. <laughs> none of these things are my fact, and none of these things are related to say soids. Soids are fucking scary. In short, sorry to fucking scary, and I wouldn't want one of those coming after me. Uh, also, very quickly, and then you guys can answer, there was a toy that we got from Canada years ago, because my sister went to Canada when she was a kid and came back and had a toy, and it was a cow. And it was a cow, and the idea was you could milk this cow for real. You could pour some sort of powder into its mouth, and it nope. would convert mm -mm. the powder nope. into milk. And then the milk would literally come out of the cow's udders, and the cow would go... Mm. No, no, hard pass. No, absolutely not. Would not want to be chased sick. by that. No, <laughs> don't want it. No, no, no. I refuse. Yeah. No. yeah. So, lowest two. So, uh, the, the right answer, I think, is uh, <laughs> is the Care Bears. Because Aww. those motherfuckers brainwashed people, dude. The Care Bears stare. You know, so there'd be some kid who didn't know. There'd be some kid who like didn't want to clean the room or something, and then they'd Care Bears stare <laughs> them into submission. Are you kidding me? Brainwashing, sheeple, wake up! Gaslighting, unbelievable. I mean, I think they got it pretty spot on with Furby. To be honest, I had a Furby, and um, I mean, I loved it at the time, but it was it was probably objectively terrifying and creepy and strange. Amon, did you have a Furby? I feel like you're probably right age-ish as well. Yeah, I I didn't, I didn't. I had, I remember having some little dinosaurs. I think I remember having um a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Oh, uh, yes. Type thing. Uh, that probably, again, not somebody you want to be chasing you, especially if he's Leonardo and actually knows what he's doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no Furby for me. 
I had as well, like, it, it was a Jar Jar Binks riding whatever the, <laughs> like, weird Gungan thing, like, whatever the Gungans ride, those weird sort of, like, Gungan horse type things, <laughs> except the middle part of it was, like, a ball of rubber fronds. It was, like, a, an insane mishmash of things in one toy that was just objectively strange that I can imagine being terrifying coming to life mm. and chasing me around. Yeah, none of those, please. Did you know a fun uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fact? So you know that um, Marvel published the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics. So did yeah. you know that canonically, the toxic waste that created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the, all, is the same toxic waste spill that blinded Matt Murdock? Wow. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Because yeah. The, it's, it's going into the, into the sewers and there's three or four little turtles walking yeah. along <laughs> and they are the Ninja Turtles. What? What are you talking I about? Swear to God, <laughs> just like, I swear nonsense. to God, that is the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were created twenty odd years after Daredevil. It is so Marvel. Is it retconning? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> retconning. Do I swear it's not the Mandela effect? Helen and I didn't just make this up. <laughs> maybe, or maybe we did. Maybe there are no Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh my God! <laughs> Say it ain't so. Anyway, I think we're possibly a little off topic. <laughs> a little off topic on the Emperor Podcast. Heaven for Fend uh, at. Osh Bright asks this question, which, uh, quite frankly, is blasphemy. Watch for blasphemy. Do we think that this film did what Age of Ultron tried to do, but better? First of all, sir, you are correct. Second of all, how (laughs) dare you? How dare you? I mean, Age of Ultron didn't have a rhombus of infinite subjugation, which is uh, a real missed opportunity. That was yeah, a real you know what? Yeah. This doesn't have a bit where the vision picks up me on there, so <laughs> one one. Why must you put my babies against one another? How can they coexist in happiness? I grudgingly, I grudgingly agree. He is on the side. Yeah, yeah. You have a point, but I'm going to fold my arms while it's not in an agreement. So. Okay. I, I, it is hard to think of a better uh, Robopocalypse movie. I would include the experience of reading Robopocalypse and thinking about it in my head <laughs> because I thought that was massively derivative and not very good. And I'm glad that Spielberg hasn't made it um, because he yeah. can do better with his time. Anyway, but yeah, I, I thought as Robopocalypses go, I, I really can't think of a better one. I think what distinguishes this film in terms of the Robopocalypse is how it has something to say about technology that's not preachy, that considers both sides, that takes into account how the youth use it, as well as how sort of slightly all, as well as, well as, as well as how all the people may feel about technology. And it weaves all of that in in a very sort of effective way. Mm. There's no other sort of Robo Apocalypse movie uh, that I could think of that does that. It's more often than not, technology is the enemy. Um, and obviously, this goes a different way on it. And, it really works. I do feel like a good companion piece to this is The World's End. Like, I think that's mm. a great robot apocalypse movie that is also about kind of human relationships and connection more than anything. And mm. for me, this film has so much Edgar Wright energy. For me, it is basically yeah. the Lego movie meets Scott Pilgrim, pretty much. But in terms of, yeah, the robot apocalypse thing and, and these like this band of characters you have to kind of forge together to fight back, yeah, has a lot of The World's mm. End in it as well. It also has a lot of the um, the Katie's plans. When we see Katie's plans sketched a couple of times, yeah. it feels very much like Sean's plan about, you know, okay, go to mom's, <laughs> kill Philip. You know, go to Winchester and uh, wait, wait for this all to blow, blow over. over. And uh, I did write that down as a question to ask Mike Rianda. Guess <laughs> what? Guess what happened, folks? 
We didn't, didn't ask, ask him. Didn't ask him. I've heard this movie be described as Ladybird and their family take on Skynet, uh, which also works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I suppose I suppose that's a Robopocalypse movie, so that's pretty good too. Yeah, yeah. I'd and also, about this that is one. it's a more humane robot apocalypse, I would say as well. That uh, that pal is. You know, she's she's. There's no nuclear bombs here. There's no. She doesn't do what Ultron wants to do, which is to you know, <laughs> drop a city onto the world and and destroy it like an like an asteroid. All she wants to do is enslave humanity in some very comfortable looking pods and then jettison them into the black void of space <laughs> I mean, for eternity. I mean, that's that's. I'd, I'd be okay with that. It's not super humane, is it? I mean, yes, <laughs> free Wi-Fi, but you know, lack of food, lack of bathrooms. We don't know uh, no that. We to- don't know that. We don't know. We don't know that she could have been planning to keep humanity alive and just head them, you know, let them go off to another planet in those pods forever. They, they she had doesn't a chair. say another planet. She doesn't say another planet. She says the va- black void of space. Eventually, they mm-hmm. would have found. You know, they would have landed on Uranus. <laughs> That's really not how space works. Um, oh. it, in a number of ways, and I'm going to ignore <laughs> the Uranus joke because it's just too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Uh, but you know, I, I, th- those pods, for example, we don't see when we first see the pods manifested. Right? Mm-hmm. They don't have TV screens. They don't have chairs in them. So presumably, she can use some sort of cool nanotechnology to to manifest the the chairs and the TV. So stands to reason she could also feed people, keep them alive if she wanted to. I'm not saying she would. She's clearly insane. But you know, I'm saying there's a possibility. There uh-huh. is a possibility. Mm-hmm. That gag when uh, she shuts off the Wi-Fi is great. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We, we'd lose it. Yeah, yeah. We would lose it. There was a comedian whose name I won't mention because he has since proved problematic, but he did a great routine on a talk show a few years ago about how quickly we get used to stuff and how quickly we become entitled about things, mm. like something that, that should not exist, like Wi-Fi on planes. Now, if it, we don't have Wi-Fi on a plane or if it's sketchy, this is back in the days when we used to go on planes, <laughs> but you would, you, you know, you, you go from a period where you're going, oh, yeah, I'm on a plane now. I can't get Wi-Fi to, what the fuck? I can't get Wi-Fi on a plane? This is outrageous. Who do I speak to? Who do I complain to? I want money back. And that's how quickly we can, we can, that's how quickly we become dependent upon Wi-Fi. Mm. Hey, no Wi-Fi, no Empire podcast. <gasps> so think about that. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> think about that. I would also just add that anytime Rick was with a computer, it was comedy gold and I laughed my ass off. Every single time. It was great. Yeah. Oh my God. That bit at the end where he tries to subscribe to her YouTube channel. I, I, I mean, I have tried to talk. I'm not going to name my mum, but I've tried to talk members of my family through using technology to do various basic things. And and it honestly was like that with the screaming yeah. and the crying and the rocking back and forth in the corner. And it was, it's amazing. It's amazing. The, the sheer yeah. panic at the install update. <laughs> Still, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. in five minutes or later or now. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. It, it's, it's very, very true. As I, someone wrote to me on Twitter a couple of days ago, not as a question for this, but just when I was talking about the film and saying, yeah, I just thought that maybe Rick's uh, uncomfortableness with technology was a bit much because he's clearly meant to be in his 40s or maybe early 50s at a push. And so therefore he would know this stuff. And I'm just thinking in response to that, have you met my sister? (laughs) Who is just a few years older than me. And honestly, if you (laughs) asked her to save the world via technology, we would all be piles of rotten smoking corpses by now. So so in that way, this rather far-fetched film has the uh, the ring of reality? Am I right? Hmm. hmm? Yes. 
at talkaboutpod. Talk about. Talk about pod. Talk about. Talk about pod. Talk about. <laughs> uh, sees two film and TV buffs discuss anything and everything in the entertainment world. Oh, clever. Free plug in the Empire podcast. Do you think Sony Animations have the capability of challenging Pixar, having smashed into the Spider-Verse and Mitchell's versus the machines yes. and then sold it to Netflix. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I And I think it's a good thing. Like this is the same way, um, not to mention our, our overlords or anything, but like Marvel always say they want DC to succeed. They want everybody to succeed. The competition keeps them on their toes and is good for the format. And it's absolutely the same with animation studios. If the success of Cartoon Saloon pushes Pixar to raise their game, if the success of Sony Animation pushes Pixar to do more than just sequels to previous hits. This is all good for animation. And I think, you know, Spider-Verse in particular, just the style of that, the boldness of that, mm. I think probably contributed to some of Soul's boldness, I suspect. And I think that this this kind of thing can only be be good for the art form. Yes, absolutely. More yeah. of this. A rising tide raises all ships. Indeed. <laughs> Do you believe them when they say that? When Marvel go, yeah, we want DC to succeed. What? Succeed at failing more like. <laughs> Lol. Um, look, I want to believe them. Let me say that. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, th I think with this as well, it's just exciting to see what can happen, obviously off the back of a hit like Spider-Verse. I mean, uh, Mike Rianda, something we did ask him and something he did say was that, yeah, that the, the studio was ready, the audience was ready for a film like this, and they felt they had more permission to go even wilder with it because of how well Spider-Verse did. So the fact that that film can kind of push things forward, as much as we're all excited about Spider-Verse 2, that there are going to be other films uh, from this studio, from Lord and Miller, and from hopefully from other studios as well. If Yeah, if Pixar were emboldened to do some of the kind of more crazy visual stuff that they did in Seoul, um, thanks to something like Spider-Verse, then if we start to see that ripple effect across various other animated films and other studios, that'd be amazing. And this and Spider-Verse do feel, to me, like a real leap forward. They feel like something properly new, mm. that each of them is distinct, but there is definitely shared DNA there, not just in how they look, but how they feel and how they operate and the sort of stories that they're telling as well. I have a question. Okay. Um, what you know did I didn't direct the film I'm on, but okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. I will answer it. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Um, what did you think of the LGBTQ representation uh, insofar as Katie in this mm. film? Well, it's one of these things. It was not... Um, particularly overt first time around, you know, they sort of, you know, her mum asks, obviously at the end, are you and Jade official? And that's mm -hmm. pretty clear, but it is the kind of thing that is still, uh, I guess, ignorable to those who are not paying attention. What I think is important is that it is there for those who are paying attention and it is, is kind of there throughout, but we just maybe didn't. It's definitely off. If you look it, at yeah. her int introduction, uh, when she says something about, you know, if you look at, you know, she keeps talking about, you know, finding my people, finding my people. And it's yeah. clear that she obviously means, you know, filmmaker nerd friends. Yeah. But I think she also means someone that she can uh, connect with uh, in, romantically. But, you know, Jade is the one she's focusing on all the way through. When she's mm. writing down her friend's names on a, on a ledger, Jade's name is bigger, sketched bigger, uh, yeah. scribbled bigger than anyone else's. But even at the beginning, when she's introducing herself uh, and you see like the screen burst with things that she's interested in, you know, the, the, the rainbow is, is yeah. central uh, in mm. right there in the middle of the screen. 
Does she come out overtly at any point and say I'm gay? No, she doesn't. Uh, but the film isn't, I would say, about that. What I would say is that I really liked it. Obviously, your mileage may vary, and I know that there are members of the LGBT community who think that it could have been a bigger part of who Katie was, and you know maybe it could have been a bigger part of the overall storyline. But and yeah, admittedly, this is coming from my clunking great big straight white male perspective. I liked it. I liked how matter of fact it was. It's clear that Katie is comfortable with who she is at the beginning of the movie. And it's clear by the end that her family is too. There's no conflict there. It's it's no big deal for Katie. So consequently, it's no big deal for the film. And you could argue, and again, I know that some have, that it should have been a part of the storyline and more prominent. You know, Perhaps she could have been trying to rescue Jade specifically, or perhaps it could have been about her realizing her feelings for Jade, but that's ultimately not the story Mike Rianda was trying to tell. And I would imagine, you know, over the last few years, we've had Lena Waithe's character in Onward, for example, but I would say that this, a lead character being gay in an animated film, is a pretty significant step for mm-hmm. LGBT representation. You know, it's a mainstream animated movie made by a major animation studio, and perhaps it'll pave the way for movies in which that aspect is much more upfront. But I thought it was handled really admirably, to be honest. Yeah, I think I think it's important that we're not. Um, you know, it's not her only identity. It's not. You know, Precisely, it's not yeah. a sort of gay struggle film. It's more of a, She's not a gay joy film, if you like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I, I mean, I wrote in the review that I think it was a little bit of a missed opportunity not to like bring that up a little bit more, than, not that it needs to be a plot point in the film, but I do think as much as there are various signs and signifiers and various ways that she is coded as a queer character, I think they could have maybe, we're still at a place where it does feel like a significant step because any small step feels mm-hmm. like a significant step. Mm-hmm. And I think you still kind of have to have to squint or be looking for that to kind of get that. I think the fact that the one line that you were saying where she speaks to her mum at the end is a a very quick line in the closing credits. It's still I, I'm I'm glad they commit to it in that sense. But I just think like there's that scene where where Katie's chatting to Aaron, the little brother, and she's saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, if you like, uh, are maybe talking to girls." And there's no point. Where, maybe there's like another interaction where he's like, "Oh, have you been speaking to any girls or anything mm-hmm. like that?" Other mm-hmm. ways that you can just just allude to it, point to it, address it, not have it be like this big central point of the film that like, oh, I can't connect to my parents because I can't come out or whatever. It doesn't have to be that. But I still think I'm glad that they did what they did. But I still think just in general, there could be more of of that in the film. That's fair. But if you compare this to uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, very Mm -hmm. recently, which which actually sort of chickened out of of actually addressing it, Um, even though we've had assurances that, oh, yes, that was sort of you know, built into the subtext and so on. So I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you, actually. I think that's that's fair and there could have been more, but I still think this is a step forward and I still think it will help, you know, young, especially lesbian, but LGBT in general, girls out there and boys um, and other, um, to to see themselves reflected on screen a little bit. And, and it is still, I mean, it's sad that it is still a big step, but I think it is still a big step forward. You know, if you think back to Paranorman, there was a big fuss about Paranorman having, I think, I think the first openly gay character in a sort of kids animation from a major studio and it's a 
one line where he mentions having a boyfriend. You know, this this is a little bit more than that, I think. So, yeah, this was good. The only other thing I was going to mention is the soundtrack to this was great. Oh my god! Like, I know we've mentioned the Ti and Rihanna song uh, that plays at various points, but like in terms of like cool bands and cool artists who are in this, like right from the beginning, you get a blast of Los Campesinos. You've got Grimes. You've got Talking Heads in here. I'm really happy that we're at a place in uh, sort of again major mainstream animated movies where you can have really cool needle drops like that. I loved that about this film. Yeah. Also, the Mark Motherwell sc- uh, score I thought was fantastic. Like all the cool and '80s weirdness of Thor Ragnarok, um, mm, yep. which tied in so brilliantly to the visuals of the Robo Apocalypse. Uh, but you know, but also kind of made fun of it at the same time. I just thought it was great. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the visuals of the Robo Apocalypse, like the the way that all of the human stuff visually is very grounded, the colors are very like muted, but the the colors that they use for all the Robo Apocalypse stuff, like the sort of neon greens, those really like hazy pinks, the way that they bl- sort of blend but also contrast those two elements of the film, like it looks absolutely stunning. The color choice here is incredible, and I think that adds to the whole look of the film being kind of unlike anything else. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think that is a good note on which to end this The Mitchells versus The Machines uh, spoiler special featuring an interview with Mike Rianda in which we asked him things about stuff, but <laughs> we can't remember what it was. But it was good, right, Ben? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to listen to this. Professionals, guys, that's what it is. I swear we asked him about the film. Anywho, it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. I have found my people, and now I must say goodbye to them. Uh, it is goodbye from Deregulate Tapioca, Mr. Five Stars himself, the objectively <laughs> present and correct Ben Travis. I was right. I was right. Doing a Ben Travis. We should all do a Ben Travis. It's called being right. Goodbye. <laughs> it is goodbye from Let the Dark Harvest Begin, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you mean <laughs> it is goodbye from uh, that's why I left them to you the have end. To do it. You Maya, 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 that's right. Maya, I'm on woman. Peace, peace. Would listen, would sing, <laughs> and it's goodbye from me, Chris Bot five thousand. You know, I didn't know art could be useful. Maybe one day. I'll find out. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.